All right. Good evening, everybody. Love to see a full house in church. Okay, so pull out your Bibles and uh, turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 is where we're going to be this evening. Um, Tonight, we are starting a brand new series. Uh, We just finished the book of Ecclesiastes last week, um, and we took about two and a half, almost three months to go through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I had a lot of fun doing that, and I hope that you guys were blessed by it um, as much as I needed to teach it to myself. Hopefully, there were some others that needed to hear what the book of Ecclesiastes had to say. Today, we are starting a brand new series called Uproot. And I think that this could be one of the most important series I have ever preached at this church. Maybe even ever will preach. Okay, and that sounds like hyperbole, right? It sounds like I'm exaggerating. It sounds like I'm trying to hype something up at the beginning of a series just because it's new and I'm trying to, uh, you know, garner excitement. And I am trying to do that. I hope that you are excited to be here and, and hear from God's word. But I truly do mean that the, the content uh, of what is in this series, I think is going to be some of the most important stuff we can cover in all of scripture. I can say for myself personally that this has been some of the most important, impactful stuff that I myself have had to be hammered with Um, by the Lord over the last seven months. Um, And so what this series is going to cover is uprooting sin. Specifically, uprooting secret sin. Every single one of us are sinners, right? We We all acknowledge, everyone would raise their hand and say, yes, I'm a sinner. If I were to ask the question, who in here is perfect, I doubt anyone except for my wife would raise their hand, okay? And if anyone else did, it would be a lie. She's the only perfect one in the room. (laughs) So all of us are sinners, right? All of us have sin in our lives, but, but a lot of us tend to downplay how bad sin is. We, we tend to fool ourselves even about how deep the rabbit hole goes. And when we truly allow the Lord to, to mine down into our souls, we realize we are confronted by the depths of our own sin. There are, are, are many cases in which we harbor our, our own pet sin, whatever it might be, whatever it is that we struggle with the most, the, the thing that besets us all the time, the one area, and, and every single one of us could probably think about it immediately, the one area in life where it seems like Satan has an open door all the time, that if he wants to get you, all he has to do is press that button. And he presses it over and over and over, and over, and over, and we get sick of it, we get tired of it, and this sin has been following us around for so long, and more than likely, most people don't know about it. More than likely, when we come into church, typically, we come in to have surface-level conversations. We ask each other, how's it going? And our answers are something like, better than I deserve, hashtag blessed, And rarely do we have real community in which we can open up to somebody and say, 
you know, there's this one thing that keeps getting me. I'm not saying that, that we all take turns up here in front of the rest of the congregation, in front of the camera, and go, my secret sin is blank. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is most of us don't have one person or two people or a small group in the body that we can come to and say, I need to be honest. I need somebody to pray with me and for me. I, I need support. I need accountability. And so those secret sins stay under the surface. And like a cancer, it grows under there. And for years and years, it compounds and gets worse and gets worse and gets worse. And all too often, we see that explode somehow, dangerously affecting so many other people, affecting more people than we ever thought possible. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at some case studies. She's so cute. She's staring right at me. She's locked in. I see you, girl. (laughs) Um, We're going to look at five different case studies in Scripture of people who had sin in secret. And keeping that sin in secret caused tremendous consequences. When it blew up, there were lives around them that were deeply affected. We're going to look at the stories of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to look at Judas. We're going to look at King Jehu in 1 Kings, and we're going to look at King David. Each one of these cases features somebody who was acting like they had it all together, acting like they were righteous, acting like their life was was, uh, good before the Lord and before others, but in secret they were holding on to something that at some point was revealed and everyone around them saw how bad it was. And the hope is that in the course of teaching this series, that we all together, we as individuals, those who are joining us online in our church, would have the courage to uproot the sin in our lives before it's too late, before that sin destroys, before the story blows up and everybody else sees in a much worse way. Um, On Thursday night, our campus ministry was was meeting together, and we were talking about specifically uh, the story of Ravi Zacharias. For those of you that don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, maybe you've probably heard of him for the first time in the headlines this week, and if that's your first experience to hearing about Ravi Zacharias, that is a testament to how terrible this story is. Um, Ravi Zacharias was one of the most renowned apologists in the world. As a matter of fact, his apologetics ministry, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM, was the largest apologetics ministry in the world. Okay, they've got influence on every single continent. They have hundreds of staff members. There are many speakers and apologists that are doing incredible work all over the world all under the leadership of Ravi Zacharias. 
If you go onto YouTube and type Ravi Zacharias, though now you might get a, a bunch of different hits, but typically if you were to go onto YouTube and type in Ravi Zacharias, you would find video after video after video of him standing on stage answering questions asked by atheists and skeptics and, and people of other religions. Questions that the average Christian would scratch their heads and say, I have no idea how to answer that. And Ravi Zacharias, being one of the most brilliant men to ever walk the face of the planet, would just answer these things off the dome in the most incredible ways ever. The work that he did for the kingdom was amazing. He, he passed away in May of last year at the age, I think, of 74. I think it was 74 when he died. But had one of the most incredible apologetics ministries that anyone has ever had. However... Before his death, allegations began to surface that Ravi Zacharias was not the same man that he was on stage. Before his death, there was one uh, couple in particular that alleged an inappropriate relationship between Ravi and uh, the wife uh, of this couple. And this particular matter, matter was settled out of court. Uh, Ravi did everything that he could to make sure that it was suppressed and, uh, and, and that word didn't spread. But then in the days leading up to his death and then in the days after, more allegations began to surface. And so Arzim employed um, a, a company to do a full investigation. And what was revealed in the scope of this investigation was awful. As it turned out, Ravi Zacharias, over the course of many years, had had many situations involving inappropriate contact with other women. Many of those situations, it wasn't just inappropriate, it was downright manipulative. Ravi Zacharias used ministry funds to pay off victims. He used his influence to take advantage of people. He even used his position as, a, a, as an influential Christian apologist to convince women to stay silent, telling them flat out, if you come forward with this, you will destroy millions of souls. Okay, Who is going to have the courage to stand up in a situation like that? There was a 12-page report that was released with the details of this initial study. And over 200 messages between him and other women containing pictures, videos, illicit conversation. It goes on and on and on. And victim after victim after victim have started to come forward um, admitting that Ravi Zacharias did something to take advantage of them. As you can imagine, the fallout from this has been catastrophic. And, and rightly so, okay? Th this is not something to sweep under the rug. That was part of the problem. Because of who he was, there were situations in which people who might have been able to do something didn't. Because so much was placed on the importance of this guy. He was too important to bring down. And so in this finding, as it, as it displayed a lot of these secrets that have come out, this large multinational, multi-continent ministry 
is now literally beginning to splinter. The offices of Arzim and various other places have decided to scrub his name off, to go independent. They have their own staff, their own speakers. Arzim itself is drastically downsizing. So much of what was built over the course of years and years, destroyed, just like that. Because secret sin, sin that Ravi Zacharias himself felt that he was too important or too proud or too whatever to bring to the surface. Sin that could have been dealt with years ago. Sin that didn't have to to get to the level that it got to, unfortunately did. And millions of people are being affected by that sin that was never uprooted. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, none of us want our story to end that way. None of us want our lives, our legacy to have that type of an ending. None of us want to to have a life in which people say, man, he or she did a lot of good things, but gosh, all of this is what really stands out. It doesn't matter what good you accomplish, if that secret sin remains in secret like a cancer, it will bubble under the surface until it tears you and everyone in your circle of influence down with it. So today we're going to look at a story in the book of Joshua where something very similar happened to the people of Israel. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully by now you are in Joshua chapter 7 and we will be reading the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 7 Um, and I will try to read it interestingly so that you don't get bored. Joshua chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, just east of here, where we sit at Bethel. That's a joke. You can laugh. (laughs) And said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, don't have all the people go up. Only let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there for they are few. Bethel and Ai were at a much higher elevation, an elevation of about 15,000 feet. And so it would have been quite a hike for the whole army to get there. And they, after all, had just defeated Jericho in one of the most famous battles in history. And so they were like, hey, you know what? We got this. This is a small town. We can take two or three thousand guys. We'll be done by lunch. No big deal. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The man is flipping out. He is having a full-blown panic attack. Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Get up, all right? It's like, it's like when my kids are throwing a panicked attack on the floor, and I look at them, and I'm like, get up. <laughs> get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clans of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire 
and stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Whew! That is some heavy, heavy stuff. So, let's first give a little bit of a summary on what led up to this dramatic scene. Just prior to this, the people of Israel engaged in and were victorious in the battle of Jericho. As you know, as the story goes, God commanded the Israelites to go to the city and march around the walls for six days and not say a word. And then on the seventh day, they would march around the city seven times and the priests would blow their ram's horns and the people would shout and all the walls would come tumbling down. And the people of Israel would go in and they would take this land. And that is exactly what happened. But God gave them a very clear command when they were about to go in. And this command is found in chapter 6, verse 18. He says this, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So God tells them very clearly, I'm going to send you in there. You destroy the devoted things. Do not take any of that stuff for yourself. All the silver, all the gold, all the bling, that goes in the treasury of the Lord. You do not steal that for yourself. Or if you do you will be destroyed. Okay, so it's not like there wasn't a warning. It's not like they went in and didn't know. It's not like Achan walked in and saw the stuff and was like, oh, I'm gonna take this and I feel no bad about it at all. No, he knew exactly what was going on. He took for himself this stuff. And all of Israel suffered for it. Because he did this, because he took what he was not supposed to take, in the very next battle, just as the Israelites are celebrating the victory of this incredible conquest, and they send up just a few thousand guys to defeat this itty-bitty city, Ai routs them in battle. And the people have to run for their lives. And Joshua and the leaders are all on their faces, screaming and crying and begging God, why have you forsaken us? And God's like, how is this a mystery? I told you exactly what would happen, and it's happened. So now you need to take care of it. This is not unlike what Ravi Zacharias did. Ravi Zacharias took People, people who belong to God, and he consumed them in secret. In the secret of his tent, he consumed what was devoted to the Lord. Now, for us, hopefully, hopefully there is no one in this church who is doing that physically. If there are, by God, let's take care of that, okay? Maybe you're not doing it physically, but 
if you have ever used something like pornography, it is committing that sin in your heart. It is consuming people in secret. People who belong to God. Achan took something that belonged to God and he wanted it for his own consumption. And we are guilty of doing the very same things. Lust is the act of taking people who belong to God and consuming them. Selfishness. Selfishness is the act of taking something that belongs to God and refusing to share it with other people. This sin can take many, many forms. We are guilty at times of taking for ourselves something that does not belong to us, belongs to the Lord, and we treat it like an object for our consumption. Now, we might ask the question, why did God command the Israelites to destroy things instead of keep things? Or, or, or why did he command them to put these things in the Lord's treasury? And the reason for that is because this conquest into Canaan was not about personal gain for anybody. Okay, Every other conquest that was being waged, every other war that was being fought were people who saw things that they wanted, land that they wanted, stuff that they wanted, whatever it might be, and people wanted it for themselves and went and took it from somebody else for themselves. That's not what Israel was doing. Okay, Israel is not trying to enrich their own pockets by going into the land of Canaan. God himself sends the people into the land because he says, all of this belongs to me and you are going to be my representatives to bring it back to my ownership. I'm not doing this for you to pad your pockets. So do not have the wrong motivation here. I want to make sure that you guys understand why I am asking you to do these things. No individuals are doing this to get rich off the spoils, okay? This is not about warriors notching victories on their belts, bringing home the spoils of war. This is entirely for the glory of God. You are my representatives for my glory. And so God knew that the people would be corrupted in their hearts unless he safeguards them from that idolatry by telling them, you are to destroy the devoted things. You are to put these things in the treasury, not in your pocket. These things belong in the bank of the Lord, not hidden in your tent. And so Achan was guilty. Guilty of a number of things. Not only was he guilty of disobeying, not only was he guilty of stealing, he's also guilty of lying. Look, look at what it says in verse 11. God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. We had an agreement and you did not fulfill your end of the bargain. They have taken some of the devoted things they took they have stolen and lied. So to this is added dishonesty. He says Achan flat out lied. Achan stole and he lied. How did Achan lie? Well, in a sense, not telling the truth is a form of lying. Maybe at some point he was accused and denied it. Maybe at some point there's a conversation. You didn't take anything, did you? Ah, no. I didn't take anything. Did you take anything? Is, is, there, is there anything hidden in your tent? No, it's not in my tent. Somebody else, may, not me. I didn't do it. 
So Achan lied. He broke God's covenant. He took what he was not supposed to take. He covered it up and he lied for it. Now, up to this point, all of this has been about Achan in our minds, right? We know who is guilty here. We know that Achan is the one who committed this sin. But it's very interesting that the word that is used is continually they. God, when speaking about Achan's sin, says the people of Israel have sinned. Verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan took some of the devoted things. So the people are guilty because Achan took. Uh, Verse 10, the Lord said, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. So, here's the first thing we need to understand about sin. This is point number one. Individual sin is corporate sin. Individual sin is corporate sin. If you're anything like me, naturally, one of the immediate questions that comes up when we read this passage is, why did God have Israel execute Achan's entire family? what Achan did? Or why did all of Israel, why did the entire nation, the whole group, lose in battle? 36 men lost their lives. 36 families now are without a husband or a father or a brother or a son. All of these people suffer because of what one man did. Interestingly, um, when the, uh, the list uh, of people are, are mentioned here where it says in, uh, in verse uh, 24 that Joshua and Israel took Achan and, and the silver and the cloak and his sons and daughters. Interestingly, his wife is not named there, which can only mean one of two things. Either she was dead or she was not complicit. She had no idea what he had done. Um, but his sons and his daughters are named here. Now, are his sons and daughters complicit in this? Other passages, I believe, tell us that they more than likely were. For example, Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Thank God, right? Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Thank God, right, Eli? Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So, understanding that being the law of the land, it must have been that Achan's kids in the tent with him are complicit in this. But here's what we need to understand, ultimately at at the bottom, is that sin 
has a corporate effect. Sin has a corporate effect. It it affects all of us. One of the chief lies that Satan tells us about sin is that sin only affects you. What you do in secret is only what you do in secret. It will only affect you or the one or two people that are doing it with you. The only people that will be affected by your decisions are you. But that is never, ever true. Every sin that you commit is guaranteed to affect the people around you. The people that are in your circle, the people that are under your influence, the people that are around you are going to be affected by your sin. And as a member of the body of Christ, if you are, if you place your faith in Jesus as your savior and you are a member of his body, your sin affects the entire body. Why did the entire nation have to suffer for one man's sin? Every Israelite was trained and taught to understand that none of them represented themselves. None of them were identified by themselves. Every single one of them was a representative of God. They were a member of the people of God. And so they were taught, when you disobey, it affects the entire nation. You are a part of a corporate entity. And so as Christians, we have to understand, you are a part of the church. You're a part of the body, and the church is supposed to be a representation of the presence of God on earth. When I was a kid, my dad would always remind me, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Anybody, anybody else's dad ever tell them that? I feel like that's a, a, a Christian dad thing to say, okay? Remember who you are and remember whose you are. This would be before I leave and, and go do something with my friends because he knows that I was going to act a fool, okay? Remember who you are and whose you are. You do not just represent yourself. You represent me as your dad. You represent our family name. And ultimately, you represent Jesus. So... We have to know that what we do affects everyone around us. It is a corporate entity that we are a part of. Let let me ask you, does Ravi Zacharias' sin affect you? Yes, absolutely. Raise your hand if you knew Ravi Zacharias personally. None of us. None of us knew the man, okay? None of us ever had, I think, any kind of direct interaction with him. But yet, the sin of this man affects every single one of us. It affects the conversations that we are having this week. It puts an obstacle in the path of people that we love, that we want to see come to know Jesus, Right? Every single one of us is called to be someone that's sharing the gospel with the lost. And hopefully, that's something that you're doing. Hopefully, there are people in your circle that don't know Jesus. And those people have particular reasons why they haven't come to faith yet. They have particular obstacles in their path. This puts another obstacle in the path. And as you're trying to reach these people with the gospel, now the enemy has more ammo. And now those people are saying, man, look, yet another Christian man, another Christian leader, and they've done this. It creates yet more work for us to have to undo. 
It creates more stuff that we have to wade through, bad theology that we have to address. It, it, it creates conversations where not just with people outside of the church, but with people inside of the church who are now fighting over and disagreeing with why this stuff happened. Some people are over here going, well, it's because he was a celebrity. And boy, we have to just eliminate all of celebrity Christianity. Well, no, it's not because he was a celebrity. That wasn't the problem. That's a non sequitur. Well, it was because he was too cool. I'm too cool, okay? You guys know that. I'm not doing any of that stuff. That's not the problem. So we've got all these conversations that now all of us are having. This stuff affects us, right? A guy that we never knew, never will know, his sin, his decisions affect every single one of us because now the enemy has ammo. Now that being said, I want to emphasize here that Jesus doesn't ever lose, okay? This doesn't mean that now the kingdom has been so detrimentally affected that it can never recover. That is not how it works. Jesus does nothing but win, okay? His kingdom is not thwarted by this. He is still going to redeem. He is still going to restore. But we do have to understand our actions affect everybody else. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well... I'm not Rabbi Zacharias. I'm not on a public platform. I don't have millions and millions of people following me on Twitter. I don't have cameras on me all the time. I have no celebrity status whatsoever. So this is a non sequitur. And in part, that's a little bit true. Okay? If tomorrow you go out and shoot somebody, is it going to affect millions of people? Probably not. You may be a blip on a news radar, but your sin is not going to affect millions of other people, okay? The higher the pedestal that you're on, the farther you fall off of it. But don't let the fact that you're not Ravi Zacharias on a high pedestal fool you, okay? Don't let yourself believe that that makes your sin insignificant, Because I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever your sin is, it won't just affect you. It will affect your family. Are you married? It will affect your spouse. Do you have children? It will affect your children. Do you live with other people? It will affect the people that you live with. Do you have close friends? It will affect your close friends. Do you have people that just know you? It will affect the people that just know you. Are the lost people in your life that should be reached for the gospel by your efforts going to be affected by that? Absolutely. Because it's, it, it, instead of, and they might not even know it, okay? Because instead of you spending all your energy in gospel efforts to try to reach them, your energy has been spent on this secret sin. And so what you're not doing for those people is affecting them, even if they're not immediately aware So here's the thing, and and, and as Americans in the room, Americans especially hate hearing this, okay? Because one one of the, the chief pillars of American identity is individualism, okay? And so we Americans want to be an island all to ourselves with no one telling us what to do or how to do it or when or whatever, my world is my world, okay? But here's the, here's the reality. According to scripture, salvation is not an individual endeavor. It just isn't. 
Your personal relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's not merely personal. You do have an individual connection with Jesus, but it is not merely individual. Okay? It is not just you and God. You are saved to be a part of a body. You are saved to be a part of a corporate entity. You do not get to just follow Jesus alone. Even if you wanted that, Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus says, I want everyone. I welcome everyone. I died for you. But what I'm inviting you to is to be a part of my body, to be a part of my family, to be a part of this unit. Your identity in Jesus is individual, but it is also corporate. You are an individual member of a deeply connected community, which is why the Bible uses the analogy of the human body. Every part in the body is different. Every part has a different role. Every part has a different function. Every part is unique and, and uniquely valued in the things that it contributes. Every part is vitally important, okay? If you think any part of your body is unimportant, just hit it with a hammer. You will immediately know how important that part of the body is to the rest of the body, okay? But everyone also needs to understand that No body part is a body in and of itself. You don't have disembodied ears and kneecaps and shoulder blades just kind of floating around uh, in the world existing and living their lives, right? Every one of those is unique. Everyone is different. But every one of those is a vital part of a, a body, and so likewise, you need to understand that God has called you to be a part of a body, the body of Christ. And you play a vital role in that body. And how you function will affect how the entire body functions. When you are doing your job well, the body is greatly helped. But when you are infected with a cancer of sin, the entire body suffers for it. It's part of the reason the entire nation of Israel gathered to stone Achan. It wasn't just Joshua, right? It says this, Joshua and all Israel took Achan and all his stuff, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. They were all affected by it. They all suffered for it. They all participated in justice. Now, I got to address here what might immediately be going up in some people's minds. Immediately, some of you might be thinking, boy, that sounds (laughs) culty. Hold on a second. Are you saying that if I want to be a part of the body of Christ, what's going to happen is when I screw up, the entire community is going to gather together with pitchforks and torches and they're going to go, stone the unbeliever. No, that is not what is happening. Okay. A cult seeks to control every aspect of your life and force you to conform to anything. You are just group. There is only group, okay? And the leader or, or the group makes every single decision for you. You are no longer an individual. And the leader can manipulate you into doing whatever he wants. 
That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And in the church, the leader doesn't set the rules. The Bible does. All of us together have to follow it. And all of us together are accountable to it, including the guy who's standing up here. Ravi Zacharias tried to manipulate by changing the rules. Ravi Zacharias tried to take advantage by being someone who was above the law. And so now he is rightly being raked over the coals for it. So how about we put this idea of corporate justice a uh, justice that we all participate in. Let's put this in kind of modern terms that we can all understand, okay? What happens when a person who works in any kind of organization does something or says something that violates the values of that organization? Well, first, they're removed from the organization, right? And then the very next thing that happens is the CEO will publish a public statement saying something like, so-and-so's actions do not reflect the values and the visions and the mission of our organization, and thus they have been released, and we disavow them, right? Then what happens next is everyone in the organization has to tweet about it. Everyone else has to say, gosh, man, it just breaks my heart what Jerry did. It's so sad. I, I trusted him, but I stand against what he did. Click. Now, we can talk about how c- cancel culture has gone too far, right? We talked about this in, in, in our campus ministry on Thursday. Cancel culture goes way too far sometimes. They go overboard, canceling people for things that are increasingly ridiculous. Stupider and stupider things are causing people to get canceled nowadays. But when the, that type of action is appropriate, don't we all participate in it, Right? Don't we all cast our tweet stone? And hasn't society hammered into us this idea that silence is being complicit? And so none of us want to be guilty of that, so we we make our own statement. And again, I know that there are many situations where that goes too far. But I'm using that as an analogy for us to understand what's going on in this passage. Aiken, what you have done is not only wrong, it has now cost the lives of 36 men and will keep costing more lives until this is punished. So I'm throwing my tweet. We're all coming in here and we're all throwing our tweet. So the point here is that the sin, whatever it is, if there is sin in your life that is under the surface, you need to understand that that sin affects the entire body of Christ. And it must be uprooted in the body of Christ, in community. Again, I'm not telling you to come up here and take turns and and, and say your sin in front of everybody. I'm saying there needs to be one person, two people, a small group of people that you can trust, a a community of believers that you are tight. You, You guys are gang. You guys know you have each other's back. You guys know I can tell you anything and you're gonna pray with me and for me and be there to help carry me through this. That's one of the greatest purposes of the church. We don't just fall together, we rise together. Individual sin is corporate sin. Point number two. Secret sins never stay secret. 
Secret sins never stay secret. One of the greatest lies that Satan gets us to believe is that our sin will never come to the light. Ravi Zacharias continued to do what he did because he thought he would never get caught. And the one time that it, that it almost happened, the one time that he almost got caught, and, and, and this couple came forward, he sued them, paid them off to silence them, made them sign an NDA, and slink off into the shadows. NDA stands for non-disclosure agreement, meaning you sign a legal document saying, I'm not going to say anything. Okay, we believe in the midst of our sin, I can handle this, okay? It's not going to control me. I can take care of this before anybody else finds out, okay? I, I, can, I can manage this and keep it under wraps so that it never embarrasses me. I can do everything I can to make sure that nobody else knows about this. Or... It can be, I did it once and I got away with it. I'm going to do it again. And I got away with it a second time. I'm going to do it a third time. And you keep going and keep going and keep going and keep believing that this sin is going to remain in secret. Because it's been in secret before. Sin lies to us and tells us that we can keep going without repentance. Sin lies to us and tells us, you know what, it's really not that serious. Okay, this is not a big deal. Lots of other people do it. As a matter of fact, there's lots of other people that broadcast that they do it. They're proud of it. If I just do it in secret, no big deal. Sin lies to us and tells us you can beat it on your own. You don't need anybody else. You don't need to be honest with anyone else. You don't need to be transparent with anyone else. You can just, without any help, without any community, take care of this on your own. But here is the truth. Even if no one else sees your sin, God always does. God always does. And there is no way, nowhere to hide from him. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Be sure your sin will find you out. It is going to happen, guaranteed. Sooner or later, somehow, some way, it's going to come out. Now imagine in this scene what Achan was feeling as the lots are being cast. Okay, so the system that God had set up at the time was that the, uh, the, the casting of lots would show uh, what the truth is in a particular situation. And so, he says, start with the tribes. You cast lots, and whatever, lot, whatever tribe the lot falls to, go to that tribe. Okay, so all of Israel's gathered up, and the priests are there, and, and they cast lots. And, oh, the tribe of Judah is picked. Now, the other 11 tribes are like, not us. We're good. But now everybody in the tribe of Judah is like, "Uh uh-oh, it's our tribe. And so then the the very next thing is lots are cast for which clan. And so all the different clans are there and and the lot falls to this particular clan, the the, the clan of of Zerah. And now everybody else is like, 
all right, we can go home. But now that whole clan is like looking around like, who was it? Who did it? Then it goes to family. Then it goes to household. And now that household is like looking around and all the cousins and aunts and uncles are looking at each other. Achan knows the entire time that it was him. Okay, from the very start of the process, as all of Israel is gathered, as the lots are beginning to be cast, Achan is standing there, arms folded, knowing it's me, it's me, as Joshua is standing before them going, somebody has stolen, somebody has hidden this in his tent, Achan is standing there. What do you think is going through his head? Probably he's hoping maybe the lots will get cast wrong. (laughs) Maybe there'll be an errant throw of the dice and somebody else gets blamed for this. But you also have to know that he's sitting there thinking it's only a matter of time. The truth is for all of us, whatever that sin might be, I, I promise you, okay? Look at me, I promise you. It's only a matter of time. It is only a matter of time. A secret sin is only a sin that hasn't been revealed yet. A secret sin is only a sin that hasn't been revealed yet. And it will be. I guarantee it. I will put my mortgage on it. It's in the Bible. Everything in the Bible promises this. Your sin will find you out. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. The psalmist is saying, when I didn't reveal my sin, the hand of the Lord was heavy on me until it was revealed. It's going to happen. There is no way around it. Your sin will come into the light. Don't you want to be the one to bring it into the light in a healthy way? In a way that doesn't destroy? In a way that is repentant? In a way that that undoes as much damage as possible? You have that choice to make, but you need to know That secret sins will not stay secret for long. Secrets will always be revealed. But there's hope. As always, there is hope. This is point number three. God always offers grace from the throne before the stones are thrown. God always offers grace from his throne before the stones are thrown. You need to know about the character of God, that he always offers grace first. God always offers grace first. He never starts with a fist. He always starts with inviting arms. Always. Grace is always the first response, not punishment. Here we see in chapter 13, I'm sorry, in verse 13. Chapter 6. When God commands Joshua, get up and consecrate the people, he tells them to give the people a message. The message is 
Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So, the message, hear me out, the message that God gives Joshua to tell the people is, consecrate yourselves for devoted things have been taken and the blessing will not return until you remove those things. That is an invitation. That's an invitation. That's not a promise of condemnation. That's not God saying to Joshua, stand in front of the people and say, I'm going to find out who did it and you're going down. That's not what it is. Consecrate yourselves. That word consecrate means to set yourself apart for the purposes of God. Set yourself apart for his holiness. He's inviting someone has broken the covenant. I'm giving you the opportunity to come forward. I'm giving you the opportunity to repent. Achan could have repented. Achan could have admitted that it was him. Instead, he waited and he continued to hide. He waited as lots are being cast over and over and over until the process of elimination finally leads to him. Again, maybe he hoped that somebody else would take the fall. Even after 36 men had already lost their lives, he's still willing to put others at risk. He only confessed when he had no other choice. He had a chance to come forward. The only time that he speaks is when Joshua stands in front of him, points at him and says, it's you. Don't lie. Fess up. And at that point he goes, okay, it was me. Here's what I did. But he did that when the secret has already come out. The damage has already been done. And he's probably only doing that because he's hoping he's going to be let off the hook if he's just honest in that confession. And he does all of this for what? All of this for what? Money and pride. Money and pride. Now what he stole was worth a, a, a laborer's entire year, I'm sorry, entire lifetime's worth of wages. Okay, for a laborer, that would have been hitting the lottery. Okay, so that's a lot of money. But it's not just money that he's after, it's also pride. What he stole is significant, okay? So he stole money, he stole silver and gold, but it also says that he stole a cloak from Shinar. So as he is listing out what he's done, he says, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them, and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, does that cloak have any particular significance? I think that it does. One commentator notes that Shinar is a part of the, Bo- the Babylonian Empire. Okay, the Babylonian Empire is the cultural leader of Mesopotamia. So, this particular cloak, probably bejeweled, is not just about having a dope fit. This cloak means something. Back then, what you wore directly correlated to your status in society. Okay? Few things have changed, right? So this cloak would immediately denote him as someone of great importance. 
It would immediately set him apart as a person of success and power. If people saw him wearing that, they would immediately go, oh my gosh, you're someone that I need to respect. People would revere him just because he has this on. So he wanted money and he wanted this status. And so he put all of this at risk, all, all of the, the risks that he committed, all so that he could have that. But could he have been spared if he, if he just repented? Yes. He heard Joshua's words, consecrate yourselves. Now, would he have been punished? Definitely. Okay, he wouldn't have just gotten off scot-free. There, there would have been a punishment. Would he have been dishonored? Yes, he would have. Definitely. But alive. Alive. The penalty is always far worse when your sin is discovered rather than disclosed. The penalty is always far worse when your sin is discovered rather than disclosed. Your sin will find you out. So it's better for you to bring it into the light than for you to be burned by the light. And I need you to understand that what God offers you is not something that you ought to fear. Because what God is inviting you and saying, consecrate yourselves, is he's saying, come to me and let me take the shame of this sin from you. Let me rescue you. If you would but put your trust in me, I will redeem, I will restore, I will give you a new hope, a new life, a new chance. I will make you clean again. Don't let this cancer eat you away until it's too late. Let me take it first. I was struck as I was reading commentaries this week by one particular note that I found. That, that points out the fact that Joshua chapters 1 through 7 is a narrative section in the book of Joshua. And chapters 1 and 7 are bookends, okay? And these chapters have two characters that contrast each other. Rahab and Achan. Rahab opens, Achan closes. So Rahab and Achan are the bookends of Joshua chapters 1 through 7. And on the one side you have Rahab, who is a female Canaanite prostitute. And Achan on this side is a powerful Israelite warrior. Rahab hid spies under her roof. Achan hid stolen loot under his roof. Rahab, because of her act of faith, her, her house, and her family are saved. Achan, his tent, and his family are destroyed. And so, the author is teaching theology in the way that he constructs this narrative. He's showing us two alternatives. He's showing us a contrast. He's showing us that holiness, not birthright, Make us right with God. That if we obey, if we offer him our faith, even if you are a pagan prostitute, you too will be saved. And it doesn't matter if you are a powerful man in the church. If you are hiding sin in your tent, it will destroy you. 
who you are and what you have done does not make nearly as much of a difference as where you put your trust. And God offers you this invitation. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. I stand ready to offer you grace. Accept grace before it is too late. My friends, I ask, will you be willing to uproot the sin in your life? Will you be willing to surrender? Will you be willing to come forward to the Lord and in tight church community? And let me tell you, we're going to be talking about that through this series. What does it mean to have community? Where can I find in the church somebody to talk to? I'm ready to talk to somebody. Who is it? Or I'm too scared, but I want to explore the possibility of talk to me. Okay, because we're going to be covering some of that over the next uh, five or six weeks as we talk about this. But let's start with the commitment. Am I ready to take the steps to uproot sin in my life? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for the